Today we're continuing the sermon series we started um, several weeks ago called United We Love. And this is not only the series to start the year out, but it's the series to center the year. It's our theme for the rest of the year. Uh, you've probably seen some, um, some banners that we have out on the lawn at Inwood and Northwest Highway. There'll be more of those banners and other features of United We Love uh, that will be unfolding. Uh, last month, I traveled to the Holy Land with um, a few of our members and some others from Highland Park. We had a great trip. And I had been two times prior, but it had been a long time since I had gone. And so I saw some sites that I'd never seen before. And one of those sites that I would strongly recommend is a fairly recent discovery, thanks to Corona beer money. I just want to give you that. It's the city, the ancient city of Magdala. And the major donor was the dude who is the CEO of Corona Beer. And, and it is an amazing finding of this 2,000-year-old city of Magdala. And I want to show you a few slides related to that so you can kind of get into what this message is going to be uh, based on, which is uh, Mark 5. We'll be reading that in just a moment. But the city of Magdala, this site, uh, features a, a brand new church. Not one of the old ancient churches that's built over a site, but this is a brand new church that's built in the area of the site. And the church is, is pretty cool. You can see it up there now. The altar is the altar shaped like a, a boat. And when you're sitting there, there's an infinity pool that's on the outside, just outside the boat. And beyond the infinity pool is the Sea of Galilee, which is a great big lake, basically. And, and so it's really cool. When you're sitting there, it's almost as if you're sitting in a boat, right, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And this passage that we're going to be reading in a minute, Jesus comes from the other side of the lake, uh, perhaps to Magdala. We don't know for sure, but perhaps to Magdala. And walked right on those same streets that we got to experience there that have been uh, dug up or dug down to reach those particular uh, ruins in the old city of Magdala. Now, we know at least one important person from Magdala, and her name is Mary. Sometimes we call her Mary of Magdala. Sometimes we call her Mary Magdalene. Same one. And, and we don't know a lot about her, but she was one of those closest followers of Jesus. And, and there's lots of, of, of uh, scholarly um, uh, debate about maybe she's one of the unnamed persons or maybe appears a couple of times in Scripture and it's her, but she's not named. But just outside of that new chapel that I just showed you is a foyer. Here it is. You see, you can see the boat that's the altar in the next room and this is the narthex or the foyer uh, and, and you can see these pillars around that foyer and on these pillars not only is Mary Magdalene one on a pillar but the other women of the Bible Mary the mother of Jesus Salome so on and so forth except for one pillar is in that room that is unnamed and it's the pillar that represents all of the women of the church today who are the pillars of the church. Amen? Man, isn't that cool? Well, I love that, that entire um, experience of that chapel and the foyer. But, but what I really want to talk to you about is the chapel underneath the chapel. 
the chapel that's called the Encounter Chapel that is actually built on the streets that are 2,000 years old, the streets that Jesus himself walked. And you can see this altar or this table is built on that street. And you can sit around in this room uh, as if you're on the very street that led up from the port of Magdala and led to the synagogue that I'll talk about later. But you can also see that there is an impressive painting that's done on a stone that is behind the altar. And you can see it's men clad sandal feet, basically. And there's one hand that's extending to touch the garment of one of these wearing sandals. And I want you to notice that the woman's hand is touching the garment. If we can have that next picture, I think... It'll see, maybe this is the one where you can see it better. You can actually see that beam of light at the point of the touch of the garment. Do you see it? You can see it better in this picture right here. So the artist is making the point that this is the woman we read about in the fifth chapter of Mark. The one who has the issue of blood that we're going to read about who said, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, that'd be enough. And the artist is depicting her as someone who's actually fallen in the midst of the crowd. And so she's touching the hem of Jesus' garment from floor level, from street level, because she's in essence being trampled by those who are trying to get closest to Jesus. Now, we don't know if that happened. That's not in the Bible, but it should be. I think it's a pretty good rendition of what very well could have happened. I'd like for us to turn our attention to the fifth chapter of Mark's gospel. And why don't, before we get too comfortable, we stand out of respect for God's word and we're going to read that text together. Mark 5, beginning with the 25th verse, And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, some people came up to the leader's house, from the leader's house, saying, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand. He took her by the hand. And he said to her, Taliatha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years old. And this they were overcome. At this they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Wow. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now this story... that we've read this morning has significance. And and in this scene of Magdala, I want to show you one more slide because this is the most significant finding in this old city of Magdala. It was the old synagogue that Jesus no doubt taught in many times. I mean, we know Magdala was probably frequented by Jesus, though we don't have a lot of talk about Magdala. We know of his closeness to, to Mary, and we know that he apparently knew the leader of the synagogue there, and he probably knew the little girl, his daughter. Because he'd been there teaching. This was a teaching place. He was known by the people of, of, of Magdala. They'd all gone out to meet him. There was a crowd around him. And, and they said, don't bother the teacher. He had a reputation as being a teacher. He was a rabbi. So I want us to see this, uh, this picture. This is a, the, the old ancient ruins of the old synagogue. It's quite impressive. They found actually a stone in the middle that, um, uh, that, that goes back to the time of Jesus and, and, and the time of this particular story. It says that the crowd, they were making their way to this particular synagogue. They were making their way there because this little girl... The 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, was in need of healing. And they hoped that Jesus, who had the reputation not only of being a teacher but being a healer, could perhaps render his help. (coughs) Excuse me. But something happens on the way. There's this woman who's dealing with an issue of of hemorrhaging that she's had for 12 years. She's not getting better. She's going to doctors. She's not getting well. She desperately wants to be healed. This rabbi, who also has the reputation of being a healer, she knows that if she could touch him, she'd be healed. But she can't touch him because if she touches him, she breaks the Levitical law. Because no one who's bleeding can touch another human being, or or yet they'll make them unclean. And she certainly didn't want to make the, um, the rabbi unclean. And so what she wants to do is not to have an encounter with him. He doesn't have to touch her. Her faith is such that if she just touched him of his garment, she believes she'd be made well. And so that's what she does. Now, we don't know if 
If she's among the crowd of men, which is highly unlikely since she has an issue of blood, she wouldn't want to be around anybody, and, and people would be touching people, right? Because there was a crowd. And, and, and so maybe what that artist has drawn is exactly right. She actually falls to the ground. And she reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. As people are walking over her and walking through her, and, and there she is. And as soon as she does... Jesus stops and he says who touched me the disciples say who touched you like everybody touched you he said no somebody touched me I felt the power come out of me it was like a power surge you know it was like Jesus knew that among all of these touches, there was one touch that was significant. And then the woman fesses up. She comes out and she says, it was, it was I who did that. I mean, let me tell you why I did it. Because I'm, I'm sick and I've been sick for 12 years and I'm afraid I'm going to die this way. I'm weak. I'm weary. I haven't felt good in 12 years. And then Jesus turns to her and says, daughter. Do you know this is the only time in the scripture that Jesus refers to another person as daughter? Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, I think there's a couple of things going on here all around touch. It's the faith that she had to just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That's important, too. <coughs> but perhaps the real healing came when, when Jesus referred to her as daughter. Because for 12 years, all she'd known herself as was unclean, unforgiven. And then from the teacher, the rabbi, the healer, she heard him refer to her. He didn't know her by first name. He heard, she heard him refer to her as daughter. Daughter of Israel. Beloved daughter. Now I want to ask us a question this morning. Have you ever been in need of a powerful healing touch? You know what I mean? Have you ever needed... A powerful healing touch. The story says there are two kinds of touches. There's a physical touch. And so often Jesus wanted to transmit his power of love by physically touching. You know, he, he makes the, uh, the, the mud and he touches the blind man's eyes and he can see. And, and, and then he touches the little children who are coming to him. And in this very story, he takes the hand of, of, the, of the daughter of the synagogue leader and raises her to life. We too transmit the power of this love in our touch. If we're doing it in the name of Jesus, out of our faith, sometimes it's a kiss, sometimes it's an arm on the shoulder, sometimes it's a pat on the back. I, I, I just talked to someone who went to the early service and he told me about a time he was 
uh, celebrating his, his uh, birthday all alone. And there was a little baby on the table next to him. And, and, and they did the E.T. thing, you know. And the little baby was just enthralled with that. And, and they did it again. And the baby laughed. And before he left, the baby reached out his finger for a touch. The whole table just thought it was funny, but the man who told me the, the story, he, he got a lot out of that birthday touch at that meal he was eating by himself alone, save for the touch of a baby. You know, it's lamentable that we are so paranoid about physical touch today in our culture, right? We've grown touchy about touching. And, and I want to say, there's good reasons for that. There really are great reasons for that. I mean, touching without boundaries, that, that's not good at all. But the other side of that story, to never touch, and especially when we ask permission, or, or, or when we know it's right, we're missing something that's very deeply embedded in who we are as people of faith. You know, I like to use the guideline of Ecclesiastes 3. You know, the familiar wisdom verse that says there's a time to live and a time to die and a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted and a time to, for peace and a time for war. There's a time to touch and a time to, re, um, to refrain from touching. And we need to remember that. That needs to be part of the wisdom. A wise person who knows and appreciates the difference and what is appropriate is one that not only is blessed, but stands to bless others. You know, just a quick little aside, I was at the board of ministry meeting uh, this past week, and I sit in the room, I chair the room called the theology room, and all of these candidates for ministry, Macy's back there, she did so very well coming through the board. But, but they've written these papers and they have to defend these papers for 35 minutes. It's a, it's a very tense room, the theology room, because you know we can ask just about anything and the candidates come in there, no matter how we try to calm their fears, they come in there just petrified, most of them. And not all of them get through the first time. They, sometimes there's a deferral and you know, wasn't quite there, but need to come back next year. And oftentimes I get to deliver that good news. Yay me. And there's lots of tears. Usually always there's lots of tears. I mean, you've worked. You've poured your heart into all of these papers. You've been through seminary. You're waiting for that next step so you can go into residency. I mean, it takes longer to be a United Methodist pastor than it does to be an M.D., And there was one particular person I knew was devastated, hurt. And, and when I was in the room talking to her, I just asked her, I said, can I give you a hug? And she shook her head because she was crying. And, and I mean, we had an embrace. I thought she was going to squeeze me in too, man. And, and, and yet I felt, I hoped for her, I knew for me. That, that there was healing in that hug for me too. I mean, I was the bearer of the bad news, right? And I can imagine that there was probably a little healing going on with her as well. A pastor friend of mine reported that when he was in seminary, there was a, 
a teaching staff person, a psychologist by the name of Charles Gherkin. And Gherkin's class was a requirement at Emory um, in order to get through. You had to take a course from him. And uh, my friend said it was kind of like a big uh, psychotherapy session for preachers is what it was. But he also said that he'll never forget a statement that Gherkin once said. He said this, No minister will ever get close to a person if he or she is unwilling to physically touch in an appropriate way. I also believe that if a person is not willing to touch a homeless person, an alcoholic, someone who's terribly dirty on the street... A person who you know is broken. A person who, whom you know has just gone through something really, really, really difficult. We have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to lead us into that question. Do you need a touch? You, you know, I've been re- thinking about this whole scene for really since the Holy Land time and it caused me to think about one of my early experiences in ministry. It was in the early 1980s. I was just out of seminary, appointed to First United Methodist Church in Henderson, Texas. Yahoo! And oh, I loved it. I remembered hearing, you know, being back in East Texas after being in Kansas City for three years. I Go Chiefs. I remember... Uh, I remember my father telling me that one of my classmates was dying with AIDS. And I remember him saying, you know, they don't think he's got many more days to live. Maybe today. And I went to bed with my my high school friend on my mind. I mean, I didn't come from a very big high school. I mean, our graduating class, I think, had 80 in it. And he was one of the 80, you know. And I I couldn't sleep. And in fact, after some restful hours, I just woke, woke up and I woke Tammy up and I said, Tammy, I have to go see Winston. He was in Austin. It was three and a half hours to Austin. I had a meeting that night. So if I was going to go see Winston, I needed to get on the road early and I needed to get back as quickly as I could after seeing him. So it was going to be a go see Winston and get in the car and go back home kind of visit. And I remember outside his room, you know, in the 1980s, some of you don't remember this, but AIDS in the 1980s was very frightening, and it was very mysterious. We didn't really know how to respond. But I remember as I was outside his door, you had to put on a mask, you had to put on a gown, you had to put on rubber gloves. There were all kinds of precautions, you know. And here you look like you got a hazmat suit on and you're walking in to see a, a classmate you hadn't seen since you graduated. And so I walk in his room and I say, Hello, Winston, it's Stan. And he knew who it was. And he reached out his hand and I reached out my glove. And we visited. It was apparent he was dying. I remember I, I fed him some oatmeal. It was breakfast time. And they brought his, his meal in the room. And 
there really wasn't a lot to say. And before I left, we joined hands again, kind of, rubber glove, hands. And I prayed for him. And then, then I left and went back to Henderson, and he died that night. You know, I often thought about the power of touch in a situation like that. With someone who was dying from a disease that was not only a death sentence, but it carried with it quite a bit of shame and guilt at the time. I know I got home and after hearing the news that he died, I was of course sad, but I was thankful that I had gone and we touched. And I just hoped that that touch had something in there for him. You know, the second part of this story, there's another 12-year-old daughter She's the daughter of the leader of the synagogue. And friends came to Jairus right in the middle of his exchange with the other daughter that he's declared to be a daughter. And and they say, it's too late. Don't bother the rabbi. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. She's gone. And, And Jesus said, Don't fear, but believe. And at that time, this father, who was so afraid that his daughter would die, was touched in a spiritual way by Jesus' words, we're we're not stopping. We're, We're going to your house. Take me to your house. And there in the house, we have this little exchange. He said, well, why are y'all crying? This girl's not dead. She's sleeping. And they laugh. So he kicks them out of the room. (laughs) I like that part. And it's just mom and dad and Peter, James, and John. And Jesus touches this little girl's hand. And he raises her to life. He says, little girl, get up. And she did. And he said, give her something to eat. Nothing could stop the power, not even death. There are two other distinct spiritual touches that happened that reminded me of the unstoppable power of Jesus. I want to briefly share. You know, this week, 34 years ago, I was diagnosed with a terminal form of leukemia. And every first week of February, I kind of let myself go there a little bit. Thanks to this sermon, I went there a little more than normal. And, and I, I remembered um, that diagnosis when I was 26 years old. I wasn't expected to live to see my 30th birthday. I, and obviously I have. Tammy and I had been married for five years. Our son, Zachary, was six weeks old when I got that news. 
And I was supposed to be ordained in May. I'd been through my, uh, my, my interviews and all of that, you know. And so I was going to be ordained in May. I've got a picture in my office of my ordination. It's kind of a blur to me, so I'm glad I have that picture. But there I am kneeling at the altar at First United Methodist Church in Houston where I'd be appointed and spend the next seven years of my life and become very acquainted with that altar. But there I was at that altar, and Bishop Ben Oliphant had his hands on me and my district superintendent, James Lee Riley, and Tammy, my wife, and my uh, clergy mentors, Byron Jarrett and David Wilkerson. They were there, and they were all laying hands on me. And I couldn't see it at the time, but I can see it in the pictures. I can, you can see the concern on their face for me. As they're laying hands on my head and on my shoulders, they, they know they're laying hands on one that is not expected to live many more months. That touch was important. It, it was like, you know, we know what the doctors say, but hey, you were called to be a, a pastor and we're going to ordain you. Even if it's for a few months. And I often tell about a different kind of touch. Visiting someone in the hospital who had the very same disease I had, had the very same doctor, was given the very same medicine, and he was dying. And I felt so guilty. I remember the night that he died. I visited him that morning. He dismissed his mother from the room. It was just, just he and I. And there he was. And he reached out his hand and he took my hand and had a pretty strong grip for somebody who you knew was going to be dead in a few hours. And he told me, he said, I'm going to be all right. And I need you to know that. I'm going to be with Jesus tonight, he said. I can hear him saying it. And you're going to be all right, he said. Jesus has things for you to do. And then shortly thereafterwards, I was touched in a spiritual way, hearing my mentor Bill Henson preach. and It was hard for me to pray. And Bill said words that I, 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 I often say because it transformed my understanding of what is healing. He said, God desires to heal us and does. Some of us are healed miraculously and we don't understand. We'll have to get to heaven before we can find out exactly what happened. And some of us are healed like the Apostle Paul was healed. And we can say, God's grace is sufficient to supply my needs. The thorn in the flesh is still there, but God's grace is sufficient. And some of us are healed on the other side of the Jordan because this life is not the end of the story. Wow then I could pray for a healing, realizing it might or might not accompany a cure. I sure hoped it did, but I had this peace. But things were going to be all right. It was the same peace that my friend was demonstrating in the hospital when he took my hand and he said, I'm going to be with Jesus tonight. He had peace. He was healed. He wasn't cured, but he was healed. Do you hear me? And his touch healed me.
I had good medicine that I suspect cured me. I don't know. Only 2% of the people responded to the drug. But his touch healed me. I'd been on that experimental drug for nine months. And every stem cell in my body had this Philadelphia chromosome, had, had the cancer. Every other week, I had a bone marrow aspiration. To, I was part of the study, so we had to see how the study was going. For nine months, no change, no change, no change, no change. Eventually, that disease would go into a blast crisis state, and there was nothing they could do. I remember getting a call, now listen to me, from a member of our church, a member of Tammy's Sunday school class. I didn't know him very well, but he called. And he said, Stan, I was praying this morning, and God told me that I was supposed to, to lay hands on you and pray for you. Do you want me to come downtown, or you want to come by my house on your way home? He lived in kind of the downtown area. He was an architect. He was six foot five. And he was dying with AIDS. So I said, I'll just meet you at your house. I, I remember I came to his front door. He was a little bit socially awkward. He didn't invite me in. There we were at his front door. And here this big old guy with this mustache is standing there, real lanky, lost so much weight and from being sick and he said, well, thanks for coming by. I said, well, hey, look, if God told you to pray for me, I'm glad to be here. He said, well, God did tell me to pray for you and lay hands on you. And so no rubber glove or anything. I mean, he just reaches out his hand and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he said, God, I want to pray for Stan just like you told me to. Amen. I said, my gosh, I've come out here for that. I mean, I didn't say that to him. Don't get me wrong. I, I thanked him. I got in the car and I said, what? <laughs> and a few days later, a woman calls me. And she said, my daughter's been crying all morning. She was ironing. Ironing. Does anybody iron? Anyway, she was ironing. 20 year, years old. And, and she said that God told her to pray for me, and she was so intimidated. She didn't even know me. She just knew about my situation. And I told the mother, I said, well, some guy called a few days ago, and he, he said God told him to pray for me. So I'm, I'm game. Well, that Monday night after we did our evangelism calling, 9 o'clock in the evening on a steamy Houston night, I go out to my car, and there her car is parked right beside me. The mother's on the driver's side, and the little girl, or the woman, is on the passenger side, and she's sobbing uncontrollably, never looks up. So I speak to the mom and go around to the, car, the passenger side, and I kneel down beside the window that's open, I called her by name and I said, your mom said God wants you to pray for me and I want you to know how blessed I would be if you'd pray for me. She, she just was blubbering. I mean, she, and and she, she said, oh, okay. And then she reaches out of the window and she lays fingers on me. 
I mean, I could barely feel them. And then she prayed, and I mean, I, I couldn't understand a word she prayed. She was crying and blubbering, and it was just, I, don't, I, I didn't even know when it had ended, but when everything stopped, I just said amen. And they drive away, and I go to my car. What's that about? And the next week, I go in for my uh, report on my last bone marrow aspiration. And that cancer that had been present in 100% of my cells was now just present in 85%. Hey, thank God for small miracles, right? And three months later, it was 65. And three months later, it was 50. And until it was gone. You know, I used to not tell those two stories. They were just too weird. I told my testimony for years without telling about those two touches. I was afraid somebody would think I was a holy roller. Now I don't even care. <laughs> and it was a very important part of my healing so I ask you today do you need a touch do you need a healing touch and perhaps more important is there somebody you need to ask permission to touch is there somebody who needs power that you might could share I don't know. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Amen.